Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. How are you? It's a pleasure to see your wonderful faces quite again. If you have been wondering where I am, I hope someone has explained my absence. I have been serving the Lord in various places, sometimes next door, other times uh, out of state, at other churches where I couldn't be at two places at one time or even three. So, um, but praise God, I am glad to be back and helping us to close out the series. And uh, whether or not this is your first day at Gospel Hope and your first time hearing this kind of final installation on the series, or whether or not you have been here throughout uh, the series in its entirety, um, I was sitting there listening to Daniel read the text and saying to myself, as I listened to Paul's words and he closes out um, this letter, how can a person whose life is fraught with so much difficulty be so full of joy? And, uh, and so, again, if you haven't been in the room for the entirety of the series, I would just uh, beg you to go and read the book and just think about it, that this book is indeed about joy. But think about the pen of the person that it's coming from. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are thankful to you this morning for every opportunity to gather around your word. I think about the distinct promises of Scripture that says that wherever two or three are gathered, you would be there in the midst I think about the words of your servant, Lord God, when I say when he came in amongst the people, he claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that the faith of the people would not rest in the words of men or the excellence of speech or an oratory ability, but their, their faith would rest in your finished work and specifically that there would be some demonstration of the spirit that would make it absolutely clear that you have been in the room. Lord God, I am begging for that display of the scriptures today. Um, I believe what your word says in its own testimony, that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that we will be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I beg, Lord God, for a demonstration of that today in the lives of your people. I'm asking that even though I'm the one who crafted the message, Lord God, that you would even create something new in my own heart and that we would equally learn from you today, oh God, as we experience your presence in a way that you have ordained to occur in the preaching moment. This is your exercise. It is vain without the work of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, unless Jesus Christ be raised from the dead, preaching is vain. All of this is nothing. We could be at brunch. We are dead in our sins unless Jesus is raised from the dead. Lord God, I believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, and on the strength of that, I ask that you would allow us to experience you in this moment. Take us into more than just messages preached, but Lord God, would you transform us in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. All right. So I'll tell you, as we close out the series, one of the hardest parts wasn't the work of the message itself. It was actually landing on a title that I really liked. Uh, and so let me, I'm going to try a few on for size. Um, here's one of the titles that I came up with. Uh, let me tell you, you vote by your applause or your, your woos or whatever. Uh, one of them was uh, how to be a balanced believer in a bipolar world. Yeah, that was juicy, right? I like that. That's, that's spicy. That's spicy. I had another one. That, uh, it was, uh, it was um, um, uh, there is uh, sanctification uh, available in every life station. You like that? I had another one. This was, I like this one. This is for my, for my heady people. The obvious absence of the traditional seesaw on the modern American playground and its prophetic implications for the slow death of collaborative play in the life of children and its juxtaposition to future adults' inability to cope with the ups and downs of life. Yeah. 
However, at the end of all this, I landed with the following. Four lessons from the life of Paul in prison. So, um, maybe some of those spicier titles will show up in the course of the message, but anyway, four lessons from the life of Paul in prison, and maybe we can talk about the absence of the seesaw in the American play landscape. Uh, there is a dearth in fun furniture, and I believe it is doing something to the life of our children. Um, I just want to talk about this real quick since you, since you brought it up. I mean, think about this. Think about this, think about this. The swing set, you can do it by yourself. Yeah, it is more fun with others pushing you. The merry-go-round, you can do it by yourself even though it's more fun with others. The monkey bars, the jump rope. But the seesaw, you have to have others. Where is the seesaw? I'm telling you, there are prophetic implications to the absence of the seesaw in the, Ameri the modern American playground. But we're not gonna talk about that today. That's another message series. Well, with that in mind, uh, you've already heard Daniel read some of Philippians chapter 4, well, all of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. But as we prepare for learning these four lessons from the life of Paul in prison, I do want to read it again, but with some very particular emphasis on certain words that he uses that I believe are necessary for us to hang our attention on or to sink our teeth into to fully appreciate what I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm going to read that for you again. You ready? Um, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Some Bibles say your care for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Remember that. Now, I am speaking, I am not speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who, or through him who strengthens me. Uh, yet, um, it was your kindness or you were kind enough to share my trouble. And I'm, he's grateful for that. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, I was left uh, at Macedonia and no church entered into partnership with me giving and giving and receiving except you only. Uh, and then I want to skip down here to verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So I want to talk about four lessons from the life of Paul while in prison. I believe that these four lessons don't just uh, extend from today's text. I believe they serve as kind of an overlay for a lot of things that we've heard about in the book. So I hope that if you were here for last week's message, that you will bring some, all, some of those lessons learned with you as well. One of the first lessons that I want to bring forward is found right here, not so much on the surface, but it is, it is implied in the words of verses 10. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, for now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What you're hearing here is Paul described the fact that he is right now currently grateful that they have once again started to care for him. But there was an extended period when they didn't have opportunity, so he was receiving no care, completely and totally cut off. I believe that there is an important lesson to be learned from the life of Paul here, and it's this. Paul has learned not to let his pain create the prevailing narrative of life. I think that's important. 
Because if you think about some of the words that you may have heard last week when he talks about, man, allowing the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds, and how he says, now here's some things you need to be thinking about, things that are true, that are pure, that are noble, that are joyful, that are just, right? Almost like a sentinel that stands guard at the heart. Because when God is supernaturally guarding our hearts, our, our, our hearts and minds in peace, there is this condition in which our negative circumstances love to create a narrative for us. And the narrative that our negative circumstances can often create is that other people who are around me somehow don't care about me. But notice Paul says, I know you cared about me, but you simply didn't have the opportunity to show it. I want to assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that there are going to be some times where the Lord will get us by ourselves in order for, to him, for him to show us something about himself. This is a theme throughout the scriptures, and your negative circumstances will create an opposing and non-redemptive narrative. You're sitting here today, some of you are dealing with things in your life that no one else can help you with or rescue you from other than God. That there is no offering we can raise, there's no prayer that I can pray, there's no counsel that I can give. You are, you are sitting here in a room full of people and you literally feel by yourself. And there is a narrative that can extend from your negative circumstances that says, these people don't care about me. This is what I don't like about church and this is why I hadn't come in a long time. Negative circumstances will always create a narrative that tries to color the rest of the world and how much people don't care about us. But I want to tell you that it is not uncommon that God will put us in a unique emotional and situational island where he doesn't want us to be devoid of fellowship, but where we will find out that there is no one that can help us other than him. Amen. Just in case you think I'm making this up, consider for a moment the life of Noah. Noah is given an assignment to go out and build an ark. And sure, there are other people out there with hammer and nail, but he's the one who got the word from the Lord that there's going to be a rain that had never occurred before. And there was a public who had laughed at him, laughed him to scorn, because what are you talking about? There's going to be destruction. This hasn't happened. It was an unprecedented assignment in an unprecedented moment. Noah was situationally by himself. Even though there were others there laboring with him collaboratively, I'm absolutely certain that there were people in the bottom of the ark going, man, we wasting all of this wood. We could be building a shed for our tools. And the same happens in your life. There are things that you know that God has called you to do, and it looks ridiculous to others, and you feel situationally by yourself. Don't let the negative Create, don't let your pain create a negative narrative about how much others care. Think about the life of Job, a man who, who, who had seen God blessing his socks off, and then later he's a base, and he's got so many sores on his feet that he couldn't put any socks on. And who's there? His wife telling him to curse God and die. His friends standing around critiquing him in a moment, telling him, man, you probably did some sin or something. Why don't you just confess? Why don't you just give up? He's got people around him, but he is situationally by himself. He's the only one who can deal through and connect with God in this particular situation. Think about the life of Abraham, who God called him out from amongst his people. And as he gradually got more and more by himself, the Lord began to disclose more and more of himself. This is what I'm going to do in you. I'm going to create a people who are more multitudinous than the stars of the sky or the individual grains of sand on the seashore. And God didn't give him that insight until he was by himself. And if you follow the story of Abraham at all, 
these revelations became increasingly more vivid the more he would separate from others. And the final one came when he finally separated from Lot. And Lot decided to build his, take his people to the plains of Mamre. And then God showed up in that moment and said, look left, look right, look up, down, north, south, east, and west. This is the land that I have designed for my people. The Lord will often get his people by themselves in order that he might better reveal himself. Follow this theme throughout the scriptures in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ooh, and Joseph. A young man who, who loved the joy of family and his dear brothers, but eventually ended up what? By himself, abandoned by them, betrayed by them, found himself in a land by himself, not amongst his kin people, but some of the greatest work that God ever did in his life was when he was some of the grittiest situations. And all of them were necessary so that when he abounded, he knew how to abound without being abusive toward his brothers. The Lord will get us by ourselves so that he can show us something of himself. Think about the life of David as a precursor to his time as king. Where was he? He was a ruddy boy out in the, 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 the pasture with sheep not amongst other people, just hanging out with animals. Why? Because God likes to get us by ourselves in order to further reveal things about himself that we wouldn't learn in any other context. We could go on, right? Daniel, lion's den, right? Uh, Jonah, in his time of having to be swallowed up by his situation and spat out by himself in another place where he could more deeply understand God. And even our Lord Jesus Christ some of the most impassionate moments, not on the hilltops preaching or in the moments multiplying bread, but when he would be out by himself praying and he would say, oh, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. God likes to get his people by themselves so that they might further understand something about himself. Don't be afraid of what feels like emotional and situational isolation. Now, this is not God making a case to disconnect from community, but it just simply means that, that there are going to be some things that the rest of us in the room cannot rescue you from, even though we might want to. And it doesn't mean we don't care about you. It just may be that the Lord has curated a situation that has disarmed us from being any type of savior to you in that moment when you have to depend exclusively on him. I believe these are the kind of circumstances that Paul found himself in. But how beautiful is it that he didn't let the negative circumstances of feeling alone and unsupported create a negative narrative toward how much others cared about him. He just said, hey, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you've now been able to revive your support because I recognize that even though you cared for me, you just didn't have opportunity. Satan would love to undermine your relationships with others by crafting through your pain a negative narrative about how much other people care about you because you see them not knowing exactly how to approach you in some of your deepest and most grievous moments. Don't let the devil do that to you. All of our pain has a voice. But Paul teaches us something else also. But, but before we get there, hear these words from the psalmist. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 68, but I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, listen to this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist says, man, there was something about a season of affliction that Lord gave me deeper gravity in you. Don't be afraid of times where it feels like you're emotionally and situationally isolated. Oh, one more. I can't, I can't. We have an entire book that is born 
out of a brother in the Lord being isolated. John the Baptist on the island of Patmos, one of the most riveting and rich uh, eschatological gems we have ever received. I mean, it is the stuff that almost every doomsday movie is made out of. The book of Revelation was born on, from a, the heart of a man sitting with God on an island by himself. God wants to get us by ourselves that he could show us something about himself. So we find our, when we find ourselves cut off from God's people, it is a great time to lean more deeply into God's presence. There is something that he wants to show us. I believe verses 11 and 12 also have something to say about this. More learning. And this is where Paul really uses this word. I've learned and I know. I learn and I know. And I wanted to figure something out here. It says, now that, it says, not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in, I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and abundance and that of need. Interesting. It's learning. It's learning. It's not magic. It's learning. It's not miracles. It's learning. Well, how exactly did he learn these things? Well, I believe that the, the second thing that Paul shares with us is this, that uh, Paul has learned, and we should too, not to let our need feed discontentment. Not to let our need feed discontentment. Notice he says in verse 11, I am not speaking from a place of need. I'm, I'm sharing with you. He says, listen, yes, there was a season in my life where I was totally cut off. This is not a letter that says y'all had better make up on all your misgiving. He says, I'm not speaking from a position of need. He doesn't allow his need to feed a sense of discontentment. Oh, by the way, just in case you think I'm speaking from a position of discontentment, I have learned through Christ how to be low, how to have much, how to have nothing. I've learned it. So don't think that I'm, that I'm, this, this is, this, that I'm tearing up as I'm writing you this letter. So Paul has learned not to let need feed his discontentment. And I think we would do well to learn the same thing. Well, how exactly do we learn these things? How did Paul learn them? I believe that Paul would have been deeply dialed into the principles that the Lord Jesus shared on his, uh, uh, one of his introductory sermons there on the mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is Matthew chapter five, verses two and six, two through six. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, uh, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There is something about the ethic uh, of Christ that says whether your situation is low or high, he has a curriculum for how he can come into our life and show us something about himself. He desires to satisfy these needs in a unique and wonderful way. I believe that Paul would have also been familiar with, at a minimum with the principles that James taught his audience when he said in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation hmm, and let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and, the, and it withers the grass, its flower fails or flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also Will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits? I believe that Paul would have been deeply dialed into the fact that whether I'm at the highest place in life or whether I'm at the lowest place in life, I should be celebrating what's coming next. Should it be kind of the seesaw of my circumstances? We won't go there again. But, but, but the seesaw of my circumstances, the Lord has a design and an agenda for when my life is up and when my life is down. 
They are both biblical situations, and we just need to know how to manage them both with a biblical emphasis. Well, exactly what has the Bible done to help us manage these moments, whether I'm high or whether I'm low? 2 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us, let every word be established in the mouths of two or three witnesses. And so I believe that in the life of every believer, there ought to be a triple witness that compounds our learning. Now, for you, those of you who are academics and teachers, you know that there are three styles of learning. You ready for your pop quiz? What are they? Yeah. Auditory. Kinetic. And visual. That's right. And so what does the Bible say? The Bible says that we learn from the examples of others, from the exposition of the word, things that are taught, and then we also learn through experience, through the actual doing of God's word. So this is how Paul learned, right, to be up and to be down, how to be high, how to be low, how to be a base, how to bound, how to thrive when he's hunger. He learned through the same principles that they're teaching right now at elementary schools all over America. Sometimes you got to learn through example, by watching others. Sometimes you got to learn by exposition, by being taught by others. Sometimes you got to learn through experience, by going through it with others or even by yourself. I believe that the triple witness of Scripture would have every believer learn in all three ways, all the time. These principles that need to be woven into our hearts deeply. Again, going back to the life of Joseph. I'm absolutely certain that his father could have sat him down and sermonized him and told him, hey, brother, here's how you live if you ever find yourself being low, and here's how you treat others when you're at your highest. And maybe he did get a nice, uh, a, a nice you know, a, a family devotion around the, the family table uh, about that from his father. But I also believe that the Lord thought it was necessary that he learned through the actual experience of being low and the actual experience of being high. And I believe that the Bible invites every single one of us to do that. So when you are low, learn, y'all. And when you are high, learn. Amen. Your faith in Christ ought to be fully engaged in both stations in life. Amen. Contentment is a function of both our faith, trusting that God is at work, but also in our follow-through. There is work that we must be doing by way of our experience and how we work through those things. There is yet a third lesson to be learned by, from the Apostle Paul's life. Here's the old popular passage written on sneakers, T-shirts, and bumper stickers everywhere. Deeply enjoyed by Christians with rubber wristbands and wherever else you can find it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And guess what? You can. But I want you to realize that this passage was never to meant to be a, uh, just a plug and play for our own personal agendas. This is what I plan on doing, and let me plug in some Bible to make sure that that thing comes to pass. This passage or that principle should be viewed in light of what the rest of the scriptures teach. The Lord can empower me to be up and to be down, to be hungry and to be full, to be rich and to be in want. That's what they, these are the all things, the full spectrum the Lord can strengthen me to do all of those things. And so I believe that what Paul has done here is he has learned how to frame everything in the name of Jesus. Now, okay, what do you mean by that, Pastor Rod? Well, Jesus taught his disciples to pray in his name. And he said that if you will pray in my name, that the Father would do those things that he asked. Later in the book of John, John says, we have the petitions that we ask for and we have this confidence because we, because we pray in the name of Jesus. Where does this great confidence comes from? Perhaps I could welcome you into an example from the life of my own household. Both of my children, both is age, uh, uh, 18 and one is about to be 21, have financial devices 
in their pockets that bear my name. Right? Then by my name. Now, they both know through ongoing relationship when they use that financial instrument that the things that they expend it on must be in my name. If it's going to be in my name, it must align both with my authority and my priorities. And when they have questions out of the world whether or not they can buy a stuffed animal versus getting gas, they call. You understand what I'm saying? Follow me carefully, right? Let me have fun with this, but follow me carefully. When they first got these financial devices in their pockets, it was like, hey, I'm going to get tubbies with my buddies. Hey, I'm just going over here to get this. Oh, 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 just sticking a card everywhere. <laughs> but then, <clears throat> but then the calls decreased and the levels of concern of my heart also decreased because they learned me. They knew the things that met, matched up with my authority where I was prepared to expend resources and my priorities. They also grew to know that there were certain things that were so well aligned with not only my authority but my priorities that if they called me, I would say, don't just get one, get two. Bring me some. Yeah, you can have that. Do you need some extra? Why? Because I was fully confident that they were using my name in a way that was consistent with the things that were not only under my authority, because it's my resources, but also my priorities for their lives. I want you to be whole. I want you to be robust. I want you to have the stuff that you need to be a full-on student, to be a whatever it is that you out there doing. I put my name on that. You can get whatever you want. But it's when it's aligned with my priority for their life. And so when we talk about the Apostle Paul learning to frame everything in a Jesus name, it is, it is a process of our sanctification to in constant conversation and the experience with praying to God and having him to say, no, not that. Or no, not now. Or would you, could we do it this way? But it comes from a constant communication with the Father to learn what things fall under the name or under the authority and are consistent with his priority. This is why Paul would say in other places, pray with all kinds of prayer. Sometimes the phone calls are a petition, Daddy, can we? Other times it's Daddy, we need. Daddy, I found, what do you think? I don't want to put my hand on that unless you say so. You understand the difference in the types of conversation with the Father? I believe that Paul learned that while he was in his season of imprisonment. You see, because sometimes when we are in our highest moments, we need restraint. Dad, I want to go to the Formula One race in Miami. The seats and the tickets are $1,300 a piece. You think we could go as a family of five? Is our TV not big enough at home? <laughs> we have surround sound. I mean, you can hear the... <laughs> do we need to be there? I mean, won't we miss the cars when they get into the furthest turns? I mean, we won't have the benefit of the announcer. <laughs> Sometimes when we're abounding, we need restraint. Sometimes when we're not abounding, we need resolve. And the Apostle Paul says, Jesus, he'll come. He'll, he'll give all of that. He strengthens us, we, whether we need resolve or whether we need restraint. But here's the deal. I can only do all things through Christ when I am prepared to surrender all things 
to Christ. Put that on your t-shirt, right? <laughs> Get rid of them other bracelets that you've been carrying around, right? Proverbs, listen to, listen to the words of Proverbs uh, 3, 5 and Proverbs 16, 2. Listen to them in stereo. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean to your own understanding. There are times when I have great ideas, but they need to be surrendered to him to say, God, what do you think about this? I am brimming over with excitement and passion to do this or to go here or to, to be a part of this. But, but I don't want to lean to my own creativity and my own passion exclusively. What do you think? Am I willing to surrender it to him so that I can see him work through it? Uh, the, the other, look, look, at, look at Proverbs 16, 2 through 3. It says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the, the, the spirit or the motive. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. So the Lord knows the plans of our heart. He knows the ways in which I lean. And then it says, but every time I come to the Lord with something, it always seems like a great idea to me. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. Of course, it's my idea. Of course, it's my desire. Of course, it's my request. I think it's a good thing, or else I wouldn't dare talk to God about it. But am I willing to surrender it to him? so that he can work it out through his own means. This is what I believe Paul has learned during his time of imprisonment, and we would be good to learn too. The fourth and final lesson, verse 19. Someone blows my socks off. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every one of your needs according to his riches. The kids know to call me about anything, but they also know that my supply is according to my riches, right? Now, of course, we know that the Lord doesn't have any limits on his resources, but notice that these are his Riches in glory, meaning what is going to pay the highest dividend on him being magnified? Not just does he, can he pull it off? Of course he can. But does this honor him? There are, there are, there are many times when a, when a person can put a request on my desk, and I'm like, yeah, I could do that, but I just don't see how that's going to pay the highest dividends for who we say we are and what we are about. But what I find to be beautiful about this passage and Paul's learning that I hope to learn one day too, if I haven't already, Paul has learned to leverage his misfortune into ministry for others. While I've talked much about the capacity of God to give and to bless, did you notice that this is coming from a man who just spent, spent a full paragraph talking about how he at one point was totally cut off? This is a man whose life is fraught by need in previous seasons, and he's going to turn around from his prison cell and bless and encourage other people to tell them, well, you know that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. How can a person who is sitting in a perpetual state of up, down, sometimes got a lot, sometimes don't have enough, still in prison, needs to get out, how can that person tell other people what God is capable of doing and that he'll supply all their needs? That's because out of his misfortune, he has actually developed ministry. I believe that one of the, uh, the hallmarks of American life is that we wait until our misfortune is over 
to think that we are now super qualified to speak into the lives of others. Because we have a victor and a conqueror mentality. But the bottom line is that God sometimes wants ministry to be squeezed out of these lives, even in the midst of our misfortune. How can Paul do this? Well, I can tell you how. Paul is, Paul is able to, to minister out of his misfortune because he, has, he, he is receiving the supply of Christ in his own life. And he has now, during his misfortune, during his low times, received an additional dose of confidence that he can now distribute into the lives of others. He has seen God show up in dynamic and crazy ways. Therefore, out of his misfortune, he can minister to others rather than trying to hide it and look as if he has always abounded. But this, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is it not the hallmark of the gospel? I would ask you this question. How has your suffering become the supply of encouragement for others? Consider for just a moment the poster child of being uh, abased and abounding is not the apostle Paul. The poster child for one who is deeply abased and one who abounds is not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It ain't Joseph as glorious as that come-up story was. The poster child for being abased and being abound is the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who leaves the riches and the wealth and the glories of heaven and comes and hangs out with hateful human beings, recruits unqualified disciples who don't even half know the Bible, who he has to teach, who are bickering about who's going to be the best in the kingdom when they get in, who are bumping their chest talking about who will never let Jesus be taken, and Jesus have to pull them to the side and say, get thee behind me, Satan. It's that Jesus who gives his life in total for not only that crew of, 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 of men, but also for the world who allowed himself to be smacked and spat upon by soldiers for whom he would die, people who he could blink and disintegrate, he would sit there and be abased by them. People who would watch his body hang limp on a cross and, and say, hey, man, <laughs> why don't you get down and rescue yourself? People who would mock him. Jesus has been abased. Jesus has been alone. Jesus would tell his disciples, let's go out here and pray. And Jesus would get down and earnestly pray before the Father. And there would be like great drops of blood would be his sweat. And Jesus would get up off his knees and go, hey, guys. And they sleep. <laughs> you do remember that story from the Bible, right? Jesus prayed. thinking, And then his disciples, they sleep on the job. Jesus has been abased. Jesus has been abandoned. Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus has been disappointed. Jesus has been backstabbed. Jesus has been let down. Jesus told the man who walked up on him, this is over in the book of Luke. I call it the cost of discipleship. You can look it up for yourself. He said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus said, uh, man, foxes have holes and birds have nests. Creatures that God created have a little cubby to run into. And Jesus, but he says that the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. Jesus has been abased. But above all things, he's been the most abased because he's been on that emotional island. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Completely feeling totally emotionally and spiritually cut off from the Father. The whole world staring at him and jeering. Jesus has been abased. But guess what?
Can we get some lines on the screen like in the 1980s, like for the viewers at home? <laughs> Jesus has also abounded. And because of this unique ministry of Jesus where he has been both abased like crazy and he has abounded, he has been given a name that is above every name. He is uniquely and specifically and incredibly qualified to speak into and strengthen the life of every single one of us in this room. If you are at your absolute lowest, Jesus has been there with you, and he is there with you. He, his memory is not short. In sitting on his throne, he has not forgotten what it was like to be in that place of absolute betrayal. He can be there with you. He is there with you if you trust him. Do not let your suffering and your pain be an empty and lonely place because you have not trusted in Christ. But also when you are abounding, when you're on the top as the world would define it, when you've got the ideal house, the ideal spouse, and it seems like everything you touch is turning to gold, but yet on the inside, you are so hollow because you are abounding without the Christ. I would say by all means, place your faith in him so that he can give substance to your success. But at the same time, trust him if you're not succeeding, if you're at your worst and your knuckles are dragging, you're in here today in, in, with shoes with, with holes in the bottom and dirty clothes that you're ashamed to know how many times you've worn them in a car that you hope no one will see you start up. Jesus said, I want to meet with you in that too. I want to teach you how to be a base and I want to teach you how to be a bound because I've been there. I want to strengthen you in both of those stations in life. Why? Because there is sanctification available in every one of life's stations. You can be full of joy, not because the outcomes are perfect, but because of the inward dwelling of the Holy Spirit and the work that God wants to do in us. And so I want to close by praying and understand that Jesus can both identify with us at our lowest, be our supply when we are at our lowest, but he can also identify with us when we're at our highest, and he can be our supply when we're at our highest. He wants to give wisdom on how we move when life is going great, and he wants to give us encouragement when life is not going so great. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for you are the ultimate one who has been a base and the ultimate one who has abounded. And by faith, if we place our faith in you, it is by the power of your resurrection that we come to know the reality of how to live in both of those stations of life and all points in between. I pray for the person here today who is having the time of their lives as men would count it, but they are so deeply hollow on the inside. I pray, oh God, that they would cry out to you and ask to be filled with your presence, to know you afresh if they've never bent their knee and surrendered their life to you so that in their success they might be a vessel for you and then we, they would not consume it upon their lust, nor would they be consumed by their wealth. I pray for the person, Lord God, that finds themselves on the absolute bottom and does not believe that anybody else cares nor anyone else sees them. I pray that you would meet with them. And that person, Lord God, in their pain has produced a narrative that says that there is no God and he does not care. I pray, oh God, that you would break through that calloused heart and show them today that you are the God who has been abased and that you do abound in mercy and grace for them. And you want to speak to them in that low place. I pray for the person, oh God, who's right in the middle. Life ain't bad. Life isn't in super good. 
But Lord God, they're, they're dying a slow death of boredom as they pursue the next rung in the, or the next slice of the American pie. I pray for that person, Lord God, whose life is lackluster and doesn't reflect any of the great, robust, real joy and substantive um, uh, joy that comes from a relationship with you, oh God. I pray that that person, oh God, is seeing their need for you in this moment. I pray, oh God, that every one of us, saved or unsaved, are seeing something afresh of the great power of the resurrection and the beautiful example of your son, Jesus Christ, and we would just double down on faith in you right now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Just before we get ready to worship, if you were a person here and you prayed one of those prayers and it uniquely resonated with you and you want to talk with someone, you feel like, I, I, I need to say more about that. I need to hear more about this Jesus who can beautifully identify with one who is a base and who is a bound. Our prayer team is on deck. Uh, would, you would you put your hands up? Prayer team, if you're in here, there you go. I see Nick's hand. I see that hand. I also see uh, Lisa's hand. If you're there, I see other, do I see other hands? And then there's other people who may not be on the prayer team, but they know Jesus. They know Jesus. If you know him, put your hand up, and you're willing to have it. There you go. There's people in here that know him, and they're willing to have a conversation with you about him. If you're sitting near them, or you can even come talk to me. I recognize that my personality is just way over the top, and I've had a lot of caffeine. It's two cups as evidence, and you're probably not ready for this. Um, but, but if you are, I'm, I'm ready for you. I'll have you. Uh, so, so whoever you need to talk to, whatever is your, your style, um, uh, let's, let's, let's worship the Lord and don't sit there by yourself if you need to be prayed for. Amen.